Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call and visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Professor Andrew Joppa will be joining us, and also Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It is October the 29th, and on this day in 1929, Black Tuesday hit Wall Street as investors traded 16,410,000 shares on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day, and that volume was quite large at the time. Billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors, and stock tickers ran hours behind because the machinery couldn't handle the tremendous volume of trading. In the aftermath of Black Tuesday, America and the rest of the industrialized world spiraled downward into the Great Depression. During the 1920s, the U.S. stock market underwent rapid expansion, reaching its peak in August 1929, a period of wild speculation. By then, production had already declined and unemployment had risen, leaving stocks in great excess of their real value. Among the other causes of the eventual market collapse were low wages, the proliferation of debt, a weak agriculture, and an excess of large bank loans that could not be liquidated. Stock prices began to decline in September and early October 1929, and on October the 18th, the fall began. Panic set in, and on October the 24th, Black Thursday... A record 12,894,000 shares were traded. Investment companies and leading bankers attempted to stabilize the market by buying up great blocks of stock, producing a moderate rally on Friday. On Monday, however, the storm broke anew and the market went into a freefall. Black Monday was followed by Black Tuesday, in which stock prices compla- uh, collapsed completely. After October the 29th, 1929, stock prices had nowhere to go but up. So there was considerable recovery during the succeeding weeks. Overall, however, prices continued to drop as the United States slumped into the Great Depression. And by 1932, stocks were worth only about 20 cents of their value in the summer of 1929. The stock market crash of 1929 was not the sole cause of the Great Depression, but it did act to accelerate the global economic collapse of what was to be a real symptom. By 1933, Nearly half of America's banks had failed, and unemployment was approaching 15 million people, or 30% of the workforce. It would take World War II and a massive level level of armaments production taken on by the United States to finally bring the country out of the Great Depression after a decade of suffering. The Great Depression was, of course, extended uh, considerably because of the the New Deal, the uh, FDR's New Deal, which uh, prolonged actually, the recovery process. Although he's hailed as a hero at the time, <clears throat> he didn't do anything to help the economy. Governor Ron DeSantis announced a lawsuit against the Biden administration's order requiring employees of federal contractors to be vaccinated by December the 8th, following through on a promise to take legal action to stop federal overreach in making Florida the first state in the nation to hold the president accountable. The lawsuit seeks an immediate end to the unlawful requirement that federal contractors ensure all employees have received a mandated injection. The governor was joined at an announcement by Attorney General Ashley Moody, as well as Floridians who have uh, faced or are facing consequences as a result of the vaccine mandates. Just months ago, Joe Biden was saying it wouldn't be appropriate or lawful for the federal government to mandate these shots said Governor Ron DeSantis, but now we have some, somehow gone from 15 days to slow the spread to three jabs to keep your job. Love it, Governor. The federal government is exceeding their power and it is important for us to take a stand because in Florida, we believe there are choices based on individual circumstances. Last week, Governor DeSantis announced a special session of the Florida legislature to provide protections for employees and defend the right of parents opt their children out of school masks and quarantine mandates. The governor has been working closely with the House and Senate as we move forward 
and the dates of the special session will be announced this week. I've never seen such a blatant disregard for the Constitution or the laws governing our country, said Attorney General Ashley Moody. President Biden does not have the authority to force millions of Americans to receive a shot, nor does he have the ability to punish Florida economically for not abiding by his authoritarian, unlawful, and unconstitutional executive order. I promise to challenge this gross abuse of power and to stand up for hardworking Floridians. And that is exactly what I'm, uh, why I'm suing the president and his reckless administration. As Attorney General, I have an obligation to defend the rule of law, Florida workers, and our state against heavy-handed federal overreach. Yes, you do, and thank you so much. This is the first case, and I don't think it'll be the last. I'm sure this all will be declared unconstitutional at the end of the day. Well, from Unleash Prosperity Hotline, you may be familiar with Steve Miller and his great gang that puts out a, a daily newsletter. He writes this, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi delayed a vote on the state-passed infrastructure, Senate-passed infrastructure bill on Thursday as progressives continue to insist on linking it to a vote on the Build Back Better Act sent to President Joe Biden off to Europe empty-handed and undercut by his own party as he prepares to meet with world leaders. Can you imagine the humiliation he must suffer going to Glasgow, Scotland and not having a bill signed? Whoa, the poor president. Biden rolled out an uh, updated framework for the revised $1.75 trillion Build Back Better Act on Thursday before flying to Rome for the G20 summit. Democrats are trying to pass it through budget reconciliation without GOP votes. House progressives are holding out for something more tangible than a framework with details to be determined. Members of our caucus will not vote for the infrastructure bill without the Build Back Better Act, House Progressive Caucus Chair. Pramila Jayapal, wrote on Twitter, will we'll work immediately to finalize and pass both pieces of legislation through the House together. Biden negotiated with senators to craft the infrastructure bill that passed the Senate with bipartisan support. Pelosi has re- uh, previously set a deadline of October 31st for passage of the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. The House is voting on an extension of federal highway funding through December 3rd in the absence a passage of the infrastructure bill. Looks like it's imploding. We can only hope so. Many fear that Biden and the Dems are close to passing the Biden's billion-dollar Build Back Better plan. Relax, it's all flim-flam. There's no deal, and if anything, the whole thing keeps shrinking. The good news is it appears the following horrible ideas are out of consideration. Higher corporate tax rate, a wealth tax, death or estate tax, tax on unrealized capital gains, paid parental leave, free community college, some of the worst Green New Deal provisions, IRS audits of bank transactions of $600 or more. The bad news is here is that the latest revenue raisers are global minimum tax, 5% income tax surcharge on incomes above $5 million at the 44% rate, double IRS budget, methane energy tax, Still a basic math problem, though. They still have some $3 trillion in spending, using honest accounting, and only about $1 trillion in revenue. So much of the self-Joe Biden's claim that this won't raise the deficit by a nickel. Remember, the original 1913 uh, income tax was 1% for people with incomes above $3,000. That's about equivalent to $83,000 today. And $4,000 for a married couple. The uh, top rate was 7% on $500,000 or more. About 3% of the population was taxed. The alternative minimum tax in the late 60s was aimed at a few multimillionaires and would be up impacting millions, ended up impacting millions of Americans. The left's attempt to tax unrealized gains by the rich is another example of what we call the trickle-down taxation. First you tax the rich, rich, then you tax the rest of us. That's how it works. Well, let's just hope this all implodes. We all know that pandemic lockdowns have unhealthy consequences for Americans who, from missed surgeries to depression and greater drug and alcohol use. Most half of us gained weight, but until now, there have been no quality measurements on how lockdowns prompted nervous and bored people to smoke more cigarettes. Now the Federal Trade Commission reports the number of cigarettes purchased rose for the first time in over 20 years. The amount of smokeless tobacco products sold also increased. 
In 2020, total nicotine consumption in the U.S. was up 3.4%, so clearly the pandemic has had an impact. Increased smoking leads to inevitably more deaths. Cigarette smoking is responsible for more than 480,000 deaths. This is about one in five deaths annually, or 1,300 deaths every day. On average, smokers die 10 years earlier than non-smokers. We know, all know the terrible toll that COVID took, <clears throat> but it's, uh, the lockdown of deaths, too, without having much of an impact on health. Uh, it's a pretty egregious uh, situation, quite frankly. We know that cigarettes now, have a, uh, smoking has increased. That's going to lead to deaths. And we know that people didn't get the surgeries they need. That leads to death. A lot of these measures that were put in place, unfortunately, have not contributed to the greater health of uh, the human race. Well, finally, Glenn, uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin has pulled ahead of Democrat Terry McAuliffe by eight points in the Virginia governor's race, securing a sizable lead as the election stands less than a week away. I think it's on Tuesday. Latest Fox poll shows that Youngkin's momentum has draft, uh, dramatically shifted over the course of two weeks, climbing from a five-point deficit an eight-point lead, 53 to 45% of likely voters. We can only hold hope that his lead holds out. This is a canary in the coal mine for what's going to happen in 2022. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is Life in Naples. Net. Coming up, William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can download the app by visiting the very robust website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. So, uh, again, the saga of the infrastructure bill goes <laughs> on 
very fluid situation. I really appreciate your update. Oh, you, de- uh, you bet. And I'll just uh, set the table again, as always. Uh, this is a story about intra-party Democrat infighting over infrastructure. So on the one hand, we have uh, Democrat moderates, and they prefer a $1.2 trillion spending bill on physical infrastructure. It has bipartisan support, and it's already passed through the Senate. On the other hand, you have progressives. Um, they, they want that $1.2 trillion physical infrastructure bill, but they also demand to spend trillions more on so-called human infrastructure. And that's just a euphemism for every progressive domestic policy goal. Right. Um, you know, these positions obviously are mutually exclusive. As we've discussed on many Fridays, it's uh, incurred a great deal of, of frankly, infighting, um, internecine conflict in the Democrat Party. Yesterday, President Biden, yesterday morning, tried to bridge the gap um, on the eve of a trip to one of these international climate confabs. He announced that he had reached a framework with the moderates on the human infrastructure package uh, for $1.75 trillion. Uh, at the same time, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, figuring that this framework would have engendered trust within her caucus, scheduled a vote yesterday for that physical infrastructure bill. Uh, however, the big news out of yesterday uh, off Capitol Hill was that this vote was scuttled again by House progressives, mm. and that left House leadership, House moderates, the preponderance of the party, um, and the White House seething at progressives. Uh, however, I guess the situation, you know, it, it seemed things were at the nadir, if you will, for, for this package, and I was at my most hopeful that everything was going to fall apart. Uh, however, it, Thereafter, late Thursday evening, the progressives in the House said that they do indeed fully support the framework that was reached by the White House and moderates in the Senate for the human infrastructure package, and that they would vote next week for the physical infrastructure deal. So notwithstanding the the, the heated passions and and the internecine conflict in the Democrat Party right now, um, especially in the House of Representatives, I am uh, somewhat pessimistic, I guess, or less optimistic um, than I would have been otherwise that next week all this will come together and that they'll vote on both packages. But there remain several huge unknowns, um, in particular Senators Manchin and Sinema, mm-hmm. uh, the key moderates who have been, I guess, uh, negotiating with the White House primarily. Um, they've signaled support for this $1.75 trillion human infrastructure framework that Biden announced yesterday, but in amorphous, vague terms. It's not certain as of now whether or not either of them are on board. Um, and indeed, they, whereas they did release yesterday 1,600 pages worth of legislative text for that human infrastructure bill, that was only part of it. That was a, only a fraction of what they ultimately intend to release. So there's still a great deal of, of details to work out. Um, so, as you said at the outset, the situation is very fluid. Um, I fear that last evening they might have snatched somewhat uh, the hope of victory from the jaws of defeat, um, given how uh, mired they were in yeah. fighting uh, after the, the blown-up vote yesterday. But, again, we're, we're going to have to wait and see, and uh, things perhaps will clarify by next Friday. So, uh, riddle me this, uh, William. <laughs> you know, the don't these bills have to somehow be uh, reviewed for uh, uh, fiscal uh, responsibility? I've, I've forgotten the name of the panel that does this, but uh, my understanding is that Biden claims that this is not going to increase the deficit or going to cost the American voters uh, or anything, and uh, I, and uh, other sources saying they're a trillion dollars apart. <laughs> I would... I would uh, note regarding, yes, the president's ridiculous comment that this bill would cost nothing, um, that that sure doesn't make any sense given that they've gone through, I think, about five different revenue-raising plans now. Um, so if it doesn't cost anything, it sure has co- caused a lot of consternation in terms of raising revenue. Uh, um, I would... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, what, I've got on that aside. What, what was your question again? Well, it's basically, isn't there a process that before they can vote, they have oh, to... Yes, that's right. Have a review of the uh, fiscal responsibility of the bill. You're speaking of the Congressional Budget Office 
scoring of legislation. Thank uh, you. Yes. They do assess its financial impact. Uh, that's discretionary. So that's uh, upon leadership to execute. And ah. uh, if you recall from the Affordable Care Act, uh, Speaker Pelosi had that infamous line where she said, we have to pass the bill in order to read what's in it. Yeah. Um, and that was very much the, the sort of uh, uh, modern-day legislating that we saw yesterday when they released 600, uh, no, sorry, 1,600 pages of legislative text on this human infrastructure bill and then, in essence, said, uh, uh, please uh, deal with this, and then based on you know, your, your, uh, as much as you can read over the next 45 minutes, then we're, you know, uh, we're going to vote on this other measure. So... Um, I would just uh, uh, use your question to bemoan the current state of, of politics and legislating on Capitol Hill, whereby <sighs> these massive uh, me- these massive measures are negotiated behind closed doors and then dropped on members who have literally hours um, before they've got to vote on it. Well, hopefully there'll be a few that'll hold out, but uh, this is. Uh... This is how sausage is made, isn't it? <laughs> in, Alas. In Washington, D.C. So before I let you go, I'd love to get your comments on the uh, National School Board Association and their letter to Merrick Garland uh, and uh, all the things that have transpired since. It looks like uh, he's got egg on his face, to say the least. He's been asked to, be, to resign uh, by a couple of U.S. senators in his testimony. What are your thoughts? We're, indeed, we spoke about that letter before from the National Association of School Boards, in essence claiming that uh, parents were domestic terrorists, and, and how the DOJ responded to that letter by uh, asking the FBI to investigate. In the time since, the National Association of School Boards did a 180-degree turn, completely walked back their letter. Ah. Um, they've actually had some state members uh, resign their membership over the initial letter. Um, but notwithstanding the fact they have seen the light and walked back these uh, what were really incredible accusations, uh, Merrick Garland refuses to rescind the memo that, in effect, uh, initiated the FBI response. Um, so uh, the, the predicate for his action has been removed. And nevertheless, he's proceeding apace. Um, so I find that troubling. I, I not going to comment on whether or not he should resign, but I, I will say it, it just makes no sense. Right, well, and that's where his action is no longer there. Then why is he doing it? Yeah, well, and it's compounded by the fact that he has a severe family conflict of interest. His son, son-in-law, owns uh, a company that produces the critical race theory and some of the things that parents are so upset about. So uh, he's <laughs> there's, there's some real problems here. I did not know that. Well, I mean, uh, presumably he <coughs> complies with all the, the the applicable ethics rules, but I will note that those things are like Swiss cheese. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, uh, I I think McAuliffe wished that he got the memo too, because he's he's really struggling in Virginia. We can only hope that Youngkin <laughs> prevails on uh, Tuesday. William, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. I hope our listeners will visit the website cato.org, c-a-t-o.org. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Michael Cannon. He's the Director of of, uh, Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples.
Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board. Do a great job. And uh, just one of the programs is creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. They also have voter integrity programs. Do great work in uh, many states across the nation and with the federal government. The website is thefga.org, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. I want to pick up on the story about uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin. He pulled ahead of uh, Republican or Democrat Terry McAuliffe by eight points. Now, the dramatic shift largely stems from McAuliffe's position on education, which has been dismissive towards parental concerns regarding extremist views being pushed in the classroom generating a spike in GOP enthusiasm. According to a poll, 79% of Yonkin supporters are extremely interested in the election compared to 69% of McAuliffe supporters. Yonkin has pledged to ban critical race theory in the Virginia schools, while McAuliffe has charged Republicans with creating a phantom enemy. In the final debate, McAuliffe even went so far as to say that parents should not be telling schools what they should teach. That's right, he actually said that. I'm not kidding. At the Hill, as the Hill noted, McAuliffe's comments provided a costly blunder which has mobilized suburban parents. These ten words, deserving a top listing in the Hall of Fame of political blunders, may prove to be the turning point in the race in which McAuliffe was expected to cruise to victory, especially since Joe Biden won the blue state by more than ten points on his way to the presidency in 2020. Of course, we all know that there could be some Funny business going on in Virginia with regard to those numbers, but irrespective, I had a sizable victory in Virginia. By the way, Republicans have not won a statewide election in Virginia since 2009, so this is a big deal. Yonkin winning the governorship on Tuesday for the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, would be a very, very big deal and I think would really have Democrats on their heels. President Joe Biden's administration is considering a plan that would give border crossers who were subjected uh, to former President Donald Trump's zero-tolerance policy about $450,000 each in reparation-style payout. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this, is, this is really true. This is, unbe this is unbelievable. Trump has instituted the zero-tolerance policy at the United States-Mexico border in 2018 to reduce illegal immigration. The policy, as Breitbart News reported at the time, has been effective since at least before 2001. As a result of the policy, adult border crossers are often put in a separate holding facility from their children they arrived at the southern border. Since then, the border crossers who have been subjected to the policy have sued the federal government. The Biden administration, the Wall Street Journal reveals, is now weighing whether to provide these border crossers with $450,000 each as a part of the payout in the lawsuit filed. In some instances, a migrant family could secure about $1 million from such a payout, more than some of the American families received uh, following the September 11th terrorist attacks. The payout overall could cost American taxpayers about a billion dollars. Can you believe this? People that are here illegally, and were <laughs> this is just uh, unimaginable that Biden could think about giving a a million dollars per family for people who were, quote-unquote, subjected to this policy, which worked, by the way, very well here in the United States. You just can't make this stuff up. 
the National Republican Congressional Committee, released a Democrat damning poll on Tuesday showing the GOP leading on the geriatric ballot in 85 battleground congressional districts, 43% to 40%. It's not just that Biden's honeymoon is over. Voters are now having Biden remorse due to Democrats' incompetence, according to the report, which was conducted October the 16th to the 21st. President Joe Biden's overall approval has flipped from 51% approve, 45% disapprove in July to 45% approve, 51% disapprove in October, and it's gotten even worse since then. According to the report, the shift as approval is almost entirely coming from independent voters, a segment which played a pivotal role in getting him elected in the first place. 39% of independents approve and 54% disapprove of Biden's performance, the report states. According to the poll, many of the groups that powered Biden to the presidency now have soured on him as he is underwater with Hispanics by 5%, college-educated white people by 3%. Let me see who this is. Hello, Andy, you're on air. I'm on the air right now, Bob. You are indeed. Listen, thank you so much for calling back. My previous guest, Michael Cannon, uh, was unable to be on the show, so I just was proceeding with uh, my monologue. I have prepared materials. But I thought also I'm going to give you a call because I always love having expanded time with you. So uh, are you willing? Well, it's, it's always good to be with you, Bob. I'm sorry I missed your original call, but I was actually drinking a cup of coffee at the time. So <laughs> uh, today, you know, let, let's talk about something we've alluded to over the years, uh, which is culture. And I, I think we've not really had time to develop it as, as well as I think it deserves and uh, so today we'll, we'll dedicate my, my, my limited time to the area of culture. So first of all, just for your audience's sake, let's talk about what culture is. Sometimes we say words without really having a, a firm understanding of what they mean. Uh, these are academics that are dealing with this. Now, sometimes Americans uh, hear the word academia and they automatically reject it. Let's, let's understand that uh, academia at its best is the uh, is the the housing of where our intellectual content eventually goes, and if it's if it's done well, this is where we can get our our our, our future, our aspirations. So uh, I I don't want your audience to reject what I'm going to say because it is essentially academic, Bob. Uh-huh. But a definition of culture that I've always used in my in my uh, university teaching experience is culture is the collective programming of the human mind that distinguishes the members of one human group from those of another. Culture, in this sense, is a system of collectively held values, and that was Hofstede, who I used extensively when I'm teaching culture at the graduate level. Another definition similar to that, uh, another one by Lustig and Coaster, is culture is a learned set of shared interpretations about beliefs, values, norms, and social practices which affect behaviors of a relatively large group of people. Now, having said that, that is the reason, if we look at those definitions, this is the reason why the, uh, the left continuously tries to destroy the American culture. Uh, they know that culture is, is everything in the long run. Let me introduce another uh, academic concept somewhat to, uh, to explain why it is all that matters, Bob. There's something in statistics which is called a regression toward the mean or a reversion towards the mean. Right. Now, a lot, of, a lot of your listeners are going to blank out when I use terms like that, which uh, just sound so overwhelmingly academic, but they have significance, Bob. The, re- the regression toward the mean means that even if events occur that are outliers in a given society, eventually everything returns to the mean. The mean, in this case, is the culture. So what that, what that suggests, Bob, is let's say we win uh, local battles about this budget issue or this particular debate uh, in Congress. It, it matters certainly in the specifics, but in the immediate long run, the regression to the mean means everything goes back to the culture. Uh, Breitbart said that, I think, uh, quite succinctly uh, when he offered that everything, everything is downstream from culture. Yep. Uh, so, it, it, again, I'm, I'm running these, these two things together. Culture is everything. If the culture isn't changed, if the current state of the American culture isn't changed, then no matter what the individual issues are in terms of our success, 
everything will return to that corrupted culture, Bob. So, so Andy, Andy if, I, if, if, if I'm, you have any comments. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to uh, add this. Reversion to the mean, of course, is a, is a mathematical concept, and it's a, it's a, it's a great way that to, for you to illustrate what we're talking about when it comes to culture. But also, it not only returns to the mean, but it actually takes a dip below the mean before it comes back to the mean. So what I'm suggesting is, and I think it applies to this cultural example, is that sometimes you can see uh, going not only uh, returning to the mean, but actually things becoming more severe or, or uh, a complete reaction to the outlying activity or uh, experience that, that preceded it. Yeah, Bob, that, that's a wonderful amplification of my point. So I, I, I really appreciate that kind of, uh, of uh, building, uh, let's say, on, on, on my theme. It's, it's very important, and I think that we, we have to understand as a nation that, they, that the entire focus of the left, uh, whether it's their, um, the introduction of Marxist philosophy, and Marxist philosophy is one of their major elements, certainly is the destruction of the existing culture. Uh, why is that? Because of the things we both alluded to, Bob. It is the most critical part of a discussion as it pertains to a nation. Uh, destroying the family and the, the cultural aspect of that. Weakening the influence of religion is part of that destruction of the culture. Uh, the, the, the players in this certainly are the mainstream media, uh, the social media, uh, educational institutions at the, both the public school level and the, and the universal, uh, university level. Uh, all of these things are, in fact, building blocks in the negative sense uh, towards the construction uh, of a new uh, uh, culture for America and primarily the destruction of the old one. Right. But I would add, Bob, one of the major elements that has been used to destroy the American culture is, in fact, the movement. And this took place decades ago. Uh, Patrick Moynihan, who had established this, this concept we've all heard, of, heard about called the, the American melting pot, Yep. In, the, in the melting pot uh, imagery, it was an e pluribus unum. It, it suggested that it, eventually all of us come in and, and we meld. We, we melt into one unified whole. That was altered, and it was intentionally altered because it tends to destroy the culture. We were uh, uh, changed into something that became known as the glorious mosaic, Bob. The glorious mosaic was where we each stay, each group stays distinct. Each national ethnicity stays distinct. Each gender stays distinct. Uh, each race stays distinct mm -hmm. and separated from each other. So the mosaic is this uh, totally disunified America where there is no essential culture that, that dominates with that. We've seen this with the overwhelming intent of the, of the Democrats to bring in more and more uh, immigrant groups, and by the way, let, let's make the point, the Republicans have no basic problem with immigration as long as it's done for the uh, well-being of America and it's done meritocracy. As a meritocracy. And by law. What we're seeing now. I'm, I'm sorry, you want to think of just No, and, and, and by law. In other words, whatever immigration occurs should be according to law and not just be by the whims of a, a presidential decision or, or, or uh, illegal immigration should be stopped at, by all means. These are some of the things that, that must be understood in terms, let's say, executive orders. An executive order should never be capable of, use, of, of enacting something that produces a permanent state of affairs. For example, if an executive order allows in huge numbers of, of immigrants, that's not undoable, Bob. Uh, so you can't use this. The, the Congress has the authority, has the obligation to create all of the immigration laws. Those laws cannot be altered by any executive order. They can be fulfilled by executive order, but not changed by executive order. Right. So, so I think what we're looking at is a, is a willful intent of the, the left uh, to bring in immigrant populations that they know, because of their need uh, process, uh, will in fact support the Democrat left, and this is a uh, a voting process. I, I think that's been uh, pointed out many times on Tucker Carlson and by many others. But this is a process of bringing in immigrants to change the culture and to create a a voting change that would be undoable in in the future, no matter what happens, Bob. Right, and uh, to your point, I think uh, some people consider this uh, immigration flow as a way to build up the Democrat Party and the number who vote for Democrats, but it's more than that. As you're pointing out, 
it's a way to change the culture. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the uh, president and this administration is dismissing current citizens uh, uh, for the advantage of Ill- Ill- illegal gr- immigrants that are coming in. In other words, this is all costing us a lot of money, and it's uh, and uh, at the it's really at the expense of the, the major consideration should be what's best for American citizens. It's not that right now. Oh, it certainly isn't even a consideration, it seems, in, in most of these decisions being made by the left. Uh, just be uh, becoming aware of a, uh, at least a potential proposal to give each of the parents and children who were theoretically separated at the border during the Trump administration $450,000 apiece. Yeah. Now, that would be for one parent and one child. That would be $900,000 yeah. going to this, uh, this uh, immigration group. Um, I think if, if we're talking about something that will generate enormous levels of resentment among Americans, uh, not for the, for the immigrants per se, but for the process that the left is using, first to corrupt the culture, second to change the voting process, and third to change essentially the economic focus of America uh, by, in fact, this, this absurd uh, distribution of American tax monies uh, for people who in no way were damaged by America, Bob, and were acting illegally to start with. That's so true. Uh, so, Andy, what can we do to stop this? Well, I mean, in other words, what's the uh, cultural solution? Well, there are, there are cultural solutions. Uh, it, let me just refer to, uh, based on that, uh, historically there's a, uh, a writer, a prescient writer named Sir John Glubb. Sir John Glubb wrote about the, the way a society uh, destructs over ten generations. And uh, what he would then project, he's, uh, John Glubb is no longer with us, but uh, he would have projected is America right now is at the 245th year of its life uh, against 250 years of, 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 of lifespan. And what we're seeing right now is what, uh, Glove would have uh, described as a culture. Let me see if I can find the words the way Glove described the way a culture looks uh, when it's reached the end of its run. Uh, it's an age called the age of decadence. It's frivolity, hedonism, cynicism, pessimism, narcissism, consumerism, materialism, nihilism, fatalism, fanaticism. Uh, a cabal of insiders accrues wealth and power at the expense of the citizenry, fostering a fatal opposition of interest between haves and have-nots. Mental and physical illness proliferates the majority lives for bread and circuses, worships celebrities instead of divinities, takes its bearings from below rather than above, throws up more of social and moral restraints, especially on sexuality and so forth. The point I'm making is that the way uh, John Glove, and he's a very respected uh, author in this area, is describing and described years ago is exactly what America is going through right now. Now, getting mm-hmm. back to your question, what could be done, John Glove says once it reaches the age of decadence, which I believe we're in right now, that almost nothing can be done. But I, uh, to, I, I'm not going to end on that note of pessimism. Uh, if we look at the major units of where our culture can be formed, those units can be changed. If we can alter the education system, not to teach what we want, but to teach the truth, to teach how to think, not what to think, to understand the, the logic of reality, to understand the, uh, the, 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 the real history of America. Altering the education system, particularly at the public school level, is critical. Restoring religion, and I'm not a strong religionist, you know that, Bob, but restoring religion to its appropriate place in the society. We know, Bob, there are studies that have been done that show the uh, alignment of religious values with economic success. Yeah. Uh, the right reli- religious values foster relig- uh, economic success, the wrong ones destroy it. If we look at one of the reasons, and I, I have no problem with the Catholic religion, so I'm going to say something somewhat negative. The, re- the Catholic religion is historically focused on the poor. Now, that's okay. I'm not making a moral statement about that. I am just saying that most Catholic countries have not uh, progressed economically because the focus has been on the bottom end of the society. When we get to what's called the Pharisaic religions, and that might be seen as the uh, brought in by the, the Protestant uh, uh, revolution, the Protestant work ethic, that focuses on the presumption that God wants people to be successful, and that is demonstrated within the success through their hard work. 
So work becomes something that is deeply respected. Uh, it is not the, 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 the work of the thinking mind. It's not the intellectual. It's not the academic. It's, it's the person who works, creates the entrepreneur. Those things become respected. Getting back to your question once again, if we change the education system, if we can alter the nature of, of the focus of our, of our religious uh, institutions, if we can at least produce some degree of honesty within the media, particularly the social media, the big tech companies, uh, it's hard to say how any of this would be done, and I'm not optimistic, but there are at least a, uh, there are focus mechanisms where we can alter the culture. But I would say again, if we don't, if we don't, everything will revert ultimately to the corrupted state of the American culture as we have it right now, Bob. You know what? I, 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 clearly, we are on that track right now. And unfortunately, if we don't make some changes, I'm encouraged, however, what I'm seeing at school board meetings and, and about the uh, the upset moms. And uh, we need more upset dads, too. But the, the point being is, I think it was Jefferson that said uh, every, revolution, every uh, uh, generation has the potential to bring a revolution within uh, a peaceful revolution within the American system. So the point is this, that uh, literally the, 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 the pins are set right now for a revolution that can bring us back to the mean, in other words, take us back to uh, the origins and the importance of our, of our society and culture. For, you know, I think, Bob, I think you're right. I think we have to reestablish the, the original uh, mean of, of the American culture, uh, which was uh, extremely uh, beneficial. Uh, once that is the mindset of the American people, I think that is what made uh, America great. That is what it made, made Americans great, their, yeah. their commitment to this culture. Uh, that is why it had to be destroyed. Uh, what you just described is, is certainly the answer. Is it doable? That, that becomes a, a complex question. America, uh, I will suggest, and I think can be certainly documented, has never faced this type of situation before, where all, all of its opinion-making institutions are really dedicated to destroying that traditional American culture, that traditional American meme, Bob. The challenge is immense, but Andrew, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary on the show. I wish we had more time, and I genuinely appreciate your flexibility in calling in early, so uh, I really appreciate uh, everything that you're bringing to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad we had some time to focus on culture, as, as I think it deserves, Bob. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. All right, coming up, I'm going to be visiting with Dave Bigo. He's the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence, serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences, with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. 
Find out more by visiting OptumEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptumaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. I hope you get tickets now. Visit the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Dave is the uh, president and CEO, founder of uh, the Executive Management Services, doing business in over 30 states with uh, over 6,000 employees. SEIU union bosses came to town and said, Dave, we want to unionize your shop. Well, we just want you to sign this new neutrality agreement. If you do that, we'll go out and sign up members, uh, employees of uh, Executive Management Services. And once we get to 50% plus one, you're unionized. Dave said, well, you certainly uh, can unionize us if uh, they want to do that, but you're going to have to do it by secret ballot. They didn't want to do that. So for two and a half years, they started playing dirty tricks on his customers, on Dave, his family, the public, you name it, and uh, finally slinked away like rats on a sinking ship after two and a half years. And Dave wrote a book about it. It's called The Devil at Our Doorstep. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Bob. Uh, appreciate it. And the SEIU is, uh, you know, behind the scenes now, back pushing hard uh, because uh, they're the ones that, uh, you know, the majority to get uh, of unions to get Biden elected. And uh, they're trying to uh, turn the. Um, um, NLRB around and change the policies around so that they get back where they can force card check on everybody, which the SIU tried to do on us. And, you know, in a two and a half year battle, we beat them. But uh, it's, um, this could be scary for uh, employees and companies across the country. Yeah, I mean, a lot of business owners have, haven't been approached by unions, but when they do, they don't realize what they're up against. It's not a matter of uh, making a good decision for employees and becoming informed and they can make take a vote. These guys uh, will do anything to get their way, including using the Na- National Labor Relations Board, uh, filing complaints that are totally ridiculous, and uh, then publicizing it in the newspaper. And then uh, when, of course, they're turned down, it's just in the back page of the paper. Point being is that they'll do anything in order to win elections and, and to get their way. That's right, because they want to force unionize everybody and uh, control this country. And, um, you know, the five uh, bullets from this week, one is that, uh, um, you know, they, uh, they're going to, the um, National Labor Relations Board, you know, access report yesterday, uh, Harris Walsh Task Force recommendation include giving unions access and time to brow, beat, uh, or talk federal employees into joining unions. And the second one is card check is not as far as where you think. Brandon Magner, who until recently wrote the great law, <coughs> labor light, law light, published two interesting items. Uh, the first is that he's no longer writing his blog because he's now working for the National Labor Relations Board in one of the regions. In other long reviews, Magner has been doing some of the best writing and thinking about how the Biden administration and the NRB can best take advantage of the new majorities over the last year. Just posted a 61-page article um, entitled The Good Faith Doubt Test and the Revival of Joy Silk Bargaining Orders. In other words, going back to uh, taking away uh, companies' abilities to, um, um, you know, negotiate and bargain and, uh, and get their employees to vote secretly yeah and um they uh so these things are going on and the other big thing that's coming on is uh you know the pro act which includes um um card check and uh does other things that are really crazy electronic voting elimination of company mandated meetings expanded definition of unfair labor practices and steep fines federal subsidies for union political campaigns tax credits for buyers of union-made vehicles, reclassification of independent contractors and freelancers, um, which would make them uh, be able to unionize them, um, and prohibits permanent replacement of workers. So all they're doing right now is uh, fighting to uh, 
overturn this country and unionize everybody across the country. Yeah, and it's it's just part of the process of moving us towards a Marxist society and the attempt to uh, uh, maintain control and centralize control here in the United States. It's really a shame. Can you imagine independent contractors, guys that are out there, uh, you know, they pretty much uh, eat what they kill. They they, <laughs> they live day, pretty much day to day once they, until they really get going. And uh, now they want to unionize them so they're going to have to pay dues on top of all the other expenses they incur when they're trying to, to uh, start a business. Yeah. That's right, and um, you know this is just uh, crazy stuff on. Is um, and um, you know, and and the NLRB is being challenged to remove uh, Gwen Wilcox and David Prouty from involvement in any joint labor case, but don't expect them to comply. And S at issue is SEIU's lawsuit against the Trump board ruling on joint employer, and both since both. Wilcox and Prouty were both employed by the SEIU locals, just as Craig Baker argued during the tenure as board member that the SEIU International is a distinct entity from any of its local affiliates. Wilcox and Prouty will follow suit. Don't expect them to recuse themselves. So they're going to bring down a lot of the things that Trump uh, turned around during yeah. his um, tenure in office uh, that he had turned around at the National Labor Relations Board that helped uh, support employers and employees. Yeah, and it's pretty brazen. I mean, you take a look at what happens on the border. You take a look at what's happening with inflation. I mean, these things, that's just so brazen. It's its uh, outlandish, uh, the activities that this administration is taking. And uh, I can assure our listeners, I'm sure you will too, that uh, this same type of thing is going to happen within the labor market. That, now, as my understanding is the... the uh, Supreme Court decided that uh, people did not have to participate in the federal, uh, the public employee unions. Uh, they people could opt out if they chose to. Uh, isn't that still the case? Well, I, I think they can, but uh, they're trying to get this all overturned right now. And ones that aren't uh, part of the union, they're trying to get uh, the unions are trying to get them forced unionized too. And um, hmm. you know, they're they're trying to just gain control over everything and it's really sad what they're doing and uh you know what people got to understand this is not about um the employees uh this is all about the union bosses and the money they collect for their pocketbook and their political agenda yeah. and uh we got to fight back and uh i'll tell you something that and uh um i have a, a friend that's uh, out in las vegas he wrote an article that um uh, so we need to fight back and stand up and fight these people and um, have some backbone, which, you know, I've been saying on radio programs for a long time. And uh, he mentioned that uh, actually some uh, Southwest Airlines pilots and crews and that, um, they fought back against the unions and stood up and fought them and, uh, you know, and, and Biden about this vaccine mandate. And uh, the companies actually stood up and said, okay, we're not going to do it. Yep. So, and this is the type of things we got to do is that uh, we got to stand up and fight back against them. Absolutely. And uh, that was kind of been kind of a theme of today's show, Dave. So it's a perfect segue from, uh, from what we've been talking about previously in the show. Dave Beagle, again, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. I encourage you to get a copy of the book and read it because it's uh, prescient in terms of uh, predicting what's happening here in our society right now. Again, you can visit the website, thedevilatourdoorstep.com. You can also get a copy of the book on my website and a nice discount, bobharden.com as well. Dave, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, uh, having me on, and um, hope you and all your listeners have a great weekend. And you as well, Dave. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had fun. Uh, on Monday, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCenter.com. We were talking about current world events. Jonathan Butcher is the uh, Will Skillman uh, Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. So we'll be talking about what's happening in education. It's pretty fluid and dynamic right now. Also, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, will be joining us as well. He's the author of a couple of books. Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries located in Washington, D.C. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.